Welcome, everyone. Great to see you all. Thanks for coming. My wife reliably tells me that this um, headset gets most of the comments in her group, so apologies if it um, is a bit controversial. I just think it gives the best sound, but she says it would be better to get a ginger one, which went with my beard. But, um, but there we go. Thank you for coming. A few of you, it's your, your first time. Um, so the, the rough format of the evening, just so you know if you're new this evening, is that I will speak now, and then there'll be kind of free-for-all discussions around the tables, and then there'll be an open mic Q&A time, which will finish the evening. So that's where we're going. We'll be wrapped up by, by quarter past nine, something like that. And the title for this evening, hopefully, isn't a surprise to you. The human God, question mark, what is so special about Jesus? I'm going to begin with a quote from the author H.G. Wells. And he wrote this. He is easily the most dominant figure in history. A historian without any theological bias whatever should find that he simply cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving a foremost place to the teacher from Nazareth. At its heart, the Christian faith has not a philosophy, uh, not a worldview, not a lifestyle, but a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby... God. And therefore, our question this evening gets right to the heart of the matter. What is so special about Jesus? It's a great question. And Jesus asks a similar question in the Gospels. You may recognize it. Who do people say that I am? And then he gets even more personal later on. He says, who do you say that I am? Good questions. What's so special about Jesus? And uh, in John chapter 1, we're going to look at John's Gospel a little bit later on as we have done Every, in every one of these talks. In John chapter 1, Jesus invites us. He says, come and see. Come and see who you think I am. So that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. I'm going to quote a late 18th century writer at length. Hopefully you'll see why. He wrote, here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never owned a home, never had a family, never went to college, never put his foot inside a big city except at the end. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did any of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. He finishes by writing this, I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of humanity upon this earth as much as has that one 
solitary life. That is a famous quote from a guy called James Allen Francis. And what I propose is that we spend the next 20 minutes or so looking at that one solitary life, and uh, we're going to split the time up by looking at his character, and then his claims, and then his CV. And you'll notice they all begin with C, which gives me a disproportionate pleasure. So, first of all, his character. In his character, let me say that Jesus Christ is like no one I have ever met before. I doubt I'll ever meet anyone like him. In the gospel accounts, we meet someone who is morally principled, outspoken, massively so on sexual purity, financial generosity and keeping our word, for example. He's morally principled, and yet he's socially inclusive, eating with prostitutes and enemies of the state. In Jesus, we find someone who is gentle, giving time to children who were at the very bottom of society in his day, restoring outcasts to the communities who rejected them, giving people time. He's so gentle, but he's also courageous, speaking out against hypocrisy and corruption and double standards and pride with no fear for his own welfare. In Jesus, we find someone who holds incredible power. He could heal with a touch or with a word. He could turn the laws of physics upside down and inside out on a whim. Incredible power, but who chooses to use that power only ever to serve others rather than promote himself. Feeding, healing others, refusing to do that for himself. Someone whose talk is every bit as impressive as his walk. Even his enemies testified to his purity. Judas, who you may know sold him for 30 pieces of silver as he betrayed him, committed suicide saying this, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate, the governor who legally tried Jesus, appealed to the crowd asking, why, what evil has he done? I find no fault in him. And let me say that Jesus' character is absolutely unique, even amongst religious leaders, absolutely unique. Let's take Muhammad, for example. Now, let me preface this by saying I am not an expert on Islam. Secondly, let me say I'm not saying this to denigrate Islam one little bit. It's about dealing honestly with each religious leader on their own terms. Now, Muslim scholars will have different ways of dealing with this, but what I lay before you now are the facts as I understand them to be. Muhammad, he killed an estimated 3,000 people, beheading 700 Jews in Medina. Jesus only ever healed and was killed himself. Muhammad got a fifth of the slaves won in battle. Jesus only ever had followers who were free to leave him. Muhammad had anywhere between 11 and 22 wives, slave wives, concubines. Jesus lived content as a single. Muhammad forced people to convert. It says whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. Jesus never coerced anybody to believe. Jesus forgave insults, even as he died pleading for the forgiveness of his executioners. But when Muhammad conquered Mecca in 630 AD, he ordered three people to be killed. Why? Because they wrote a poem making fun of him. What's so special about Jesus? Well, first of all, his character. You may want to ask more about that in the Q&A time, but I want to say his character is utterly unique. And yet, 
he will not allow us to stay there, admiring him as an excellent example, as a human being, for he claims to be more than that. So his character, secondly, his, his claims. The Bible repeatedly claims that Jesus of Nazareth was, and indeed is, God made incarnate. John chapter 1, those famous verses from the carol services, you've probably heard them before. The Word, a nickname for Jesus, was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. The Apostle Peter, preaching in the Acts of the Apostles, says this, God purchased the church with his own blood. Jesus was the one who spilt his blood, and yet he says that God did that. Uh, The Jews of Jesus' day understood very, very well, all too well, that Jesus was claiming to be God. In John chapter 10, you might want to look it up later, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then we read, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many miracles from the Father, for which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, reply the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Furthermore, Jesus offers people forgiveness, the forgiveness of their sins. Now, one cannot forgive someone unless one is the offended party. Let's say Dom is cross with me, as he often no doubt is, and he comes up and punches me in the face. It would not be possible in that scenario for Ellie to say, Dom, don't worry, I forgive you. Because she's not the one with the bleeding nose. You can only forgive if you are the offended party. And since sin is an offense against the creator God, Jesus is claiming to be the offended party as he forgives, and he's thereby claiming to be God. Something else, Jesus routinely accepts people's worship. I found this stunning. Whenever people try and worship the angels through the Bible, it happens occasionally, the angels respond in a very interesting way. They say, no, 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 please don't do that. I am just a created being, albeit an elevated one. But please don't worship me. I'm not God. And yet, Jesus routinely accepts it. We're going to look at it later on in John chapter 20, but Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, and he says, my Lord and my God, he begins to worship him. And I'm going to paraphrase what Jesus says in answer to him. He says, basically, yeah, nice one. (laughs) That's right. I wish that more people saw that. Now, I suppose there may be some people here who are skeptical of these claims. There's a really common idea around these days that the people of Jesus' day were kind of credible, gullible, and very, very ready to believe the supernatural and the frankly ridiculous. So perhaps they inflated Jesus' claims beyond what he originally intended. Perhaps Jesus would be mortified if he heard what we were preaching from our pulpits in the church. No, no, I'm not God at all. But that seems very unlikely indeed. Why? Jews of the first century would have been amongst some of the very least likely people in the world to believe that God would come to earth as a human being. Some of the least likely to believe that. Eastern religions tend to be pantheistic or panentheistic, and they tend therefore to have a place for humans being God's avatar. They've got a a place for that concept. Therefore, they could cope with ideas of incarnation. Greco-Roman religions were polytheistic. And if you remember your Latin lessons and the rest of the classics, you'll know that they had a place for 
the gods being manifested on the earth in various capacities. But the Jewish concept of God was of the uncreated creator, the transcendent one far above the people and the world he'd created. And that the doctrine of the incarnation came first from Jewish believers, therefore, is remarkable. And I would say testifies strongly to its credibility. For it is not something they would have had any cause to imagine, unless, of course, it were true. And all of this begins to corner us, rather, intellectually. And it gets the Christian writer and professor, C.S. Lewis, rather hot under the collar. He says this famously, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He says that is the one thing we really must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says, and I love this, a man who says he's really a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, says C.S. Lewis. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or else something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him my Lord and my God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being only a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Jesus' character, his claims, and finally we move on to the hallowed ground of his CV, his curriculum vitae. And here we could look at all sorts of different things. His teaching, which has molded so many cultures ever since, or his miracles, turning water into wine, loved a party, or his feeding 5,000 people with a boy's picnic. I'm preaching on that this Sunday. You'd be welcome to come. Or raising a friend from the dead in the middle of his funeral, very rudely. But I want to focus, actually, not so much on what he did as on what he actively allowed to be done to himself in his death and resurrection. Because as the Apostle Paul writes, just a decade after Jesus' death, for the Christian, everything, and I cannot underline that enough, for the Christian, everything stands or falls on whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not. It is his key curriculum vitae qualification. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. We all know that a key precursor to being raised from the dead is, of course, being dead. And that is remarkable when it comes to Jesus on all sorts of levels. First of all, he chose for his death to happen. Don't you find that amazing? Across the gospel accounts, we read of 13 times where he predicts his own death. He orchestrates events so that he is not put on trial earlier than he wants to be, saying, my time has not yet come. In his trial, Pilate says to him, don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus says this, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you. And he didn't choose to die out of a disenchantment with this life, but rather we're told as an act of service. 
we're told that as he died on the cross, he took all our wrongdoing onto him. We're told that he became sin. He became the problem between us and God the Father. So that in these three hours of his crucifixion, and and I find this mind-blowing, it was as if he had become the world's smarmiest liar, the world's dirtiest luster, the world's most arrogant bigot. He had become sin. And so besides the physical agony of the nails, the suffocation, the thirst of crucifixion, he suffered the spiritual agony of being separated from his Father God in his human nature, a suffering which dwarfed the physical sufferings. And as he died, he died in our place, that's the claim, taking the penalty that our sin deserved so that any one of us could accept him as our Savior who cleans us morally muddy people for free. And I love that message. I think that's amazing. That is how he died. That is why he died. But, but how can we trust him for the significance of his death? I mean, maybe... Maybe he just lived a noble life, and everyone would agree that he lived a noble life, but maybe he just died a noble death. Maybe it's an interesting historical story, but not an ultimately significant one. Well, this is where things get really mind-blowing. There's no other way of putting it. I'm going to say this slowly and deliberately because it is remarkable. I may even say it twice. Jesus rose physically from the dead. Jesus rose physically from the dead. That is the claim. The risen Jesus showed himself to Mary and Mary Magdalene, Peter and John, 10 of his disciples, then Thomas, who was previously absent. We'll look at that later. To two people walking from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus, then later to the apostle Paul. The only problem is, and I'm sure you will agree it is a significant problem, is that people don't rise from the dead. Would you agree that is an issue? That is significant as a problem. Now, you may want to ask more on this later on. I'd invite all the questions on this. But for now, let's look, if you're happy, at some evidence for the claim. The first accounts of the resurrection are not, in fact, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are in the New Testament epistles or letters. Every historian agrees that those letters were written somewhere between 10 and 15 years after Jesus' death, so soon after the events. Jesus appeared to individuals such as James, his brother, and surely James would have recognized him. He was his own brother, after all. But... If we're being skeptical, maybe James was hallucinating. Such was his wish. His brother was going to be raised from the dead. But he also appeared to 500 people at once. And 500 people don't hallucinate at the same time, surely. Paul tells his readers that there were 500 people who witnessed it, presumably so that the skeptics among them could go and verify the accounts with one of the 500 or more. Furthermore, The main witnesses to the resurrection are women. And as we commented in week number one of the Big Questions series, why would you make it up that it was women in a day and age where women's testimony was not admissible in court? The only reason I can think of why women are the main witnesses to the resurrection is that it really just was women. 
The scholar N.T. Wright points out that both pieces of evidence need to be taken together and are stronger as a result. If people only had the empty tomb, then surely they would presume a grave robbery had taken place. That would be the most likely thing. If we only had the resurrection appearances, then the most likely thing surely would be hallucinations. Only with both of these things coming together does the most likely account become his physical resurrection from the dead. But let's be really skeptical for a moment, if you're willing. Maybe a disciple stole Jesus' body to make it look like he'd raised from the dead. And then, one step further, let's suppose that lots of other people went along with the hoax, I don't know, for a good cause or something. If that happened, my question is, why would the others around at the time have believed them? I suggest they wouldn't have done. And we need to listen carefully to this because it's both complex and important. N.T. Wright, that scholar, incidentally, his book is not a page-turner. It has lots of pages. If you're interested, do read it. He surveys non-Jewish thought around the first-century Mediterranean. In Greco-Roman thought, the soul and the spirit were good, but the physical and the material were bad. And therefore, salvation was liberation away from the body in Greco-Roman thought. So resurrection was not only impossible, but undesirable in the Greco-Roman way of thinking. Why would anyone want to be raised from the dead bodily, they would say. In Jewish thinking, the physical world is good, and therefore death is a tragedy. And many Jews were looking forward to the future day of the resurrection of the righteous. However, when that day came, it would be all-encompassing for the whole world and for all believers everywhere. It would bring a total end to sickness and to death and so on. And therefore, the idea of an individual being raised permanently from the dead, whilst the rest of the world went on in decay and sickness, was unthinkable to the Jew. This being the case, the idea that the disciples imagined or feigned uh, the resurrection out of wishful thinking, I want to suggest, is ridiculous. They weren't wishing for it, and therefore, why would they think it? Other first century messianic leaders were killed, quite a few of them, in fact. It was a common occurrence. And in no one of those occasions do their followers claim that they were raised from the dead. Why? because no one would have believed them. It's a patently stupid idea. The point is that Jesus' resurrection wasn't more culturally acceptable back then than it is now. And yet, and yet two important things as I close. First, the early believers just kept on banging on about this, despite it being culturally bonkers. Their whole worldview was molded by it. They were willing to die for it. Because of it, it had transformed them from people cowering behind locked doors as Jesus was crucified to being people willing to preach inexplicably in front of thousands. How do we explain that? Second, lots of people begin, began to believe them, began to believe their message. 
the ripples of this resurrection message arced out from Jerusalem, the place of Jesus' death, and so the worldwide movement commonly called the church began. Now, philosophers and historians of thought will tell us that a paradigm shift where a new way of thinking comes into credence. A paradigm shift takes at least a couple of generations or a couple of decades to come about for obvious reasons. It requires long conversations, debate, the academy to lead the laity in in a new way of thinking. It takes a while. New paradigms don't simply spring into being like that. And yet this one did. One minute chat of an individual being raised from the dead, non-existent. No one would believe that. The next minute, the world being turned upside down by that very message. Now, that would be very odd indeed, wouldn't it, were it not actually true. I'm going to close by reading a bit of the end of John's Gospel. And as with every other talk, I wonder if you'd join with me and just open your your Bibles. Turn to page 1089, if you would. Page 1089. And we're going to look at um, chapter 20, verse 24, under that little heading, Jesus appears to Thomas. And as I read it, just notice a couple of things. Notice the standard of evidence which Thomas demands. Notice the standard of evidence he's given. And lastly, notice the invitation given to us all. I'm going to read. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Great. Thank you very much for listening. You want to keep that passage open. Now over to you guys. Free for all discussion and we'll have open mic Q&A. Do write down your questions. Hi, everyone. Could we draw our table discussions to a close and bring all of that into um, our all-together Q&A time now? It's really good to see everybody um, so engaged, and please continue being so. I've got a stack of questions here already. Whoops. But um, if you have any more, please jot them down, and I'll come and get them. Let's start off with the first question, which is about the paradigm shift that John spoke about. How influential influential was the Emperor Constantine in accelerating the paradigm shift towards Christianity, and how long did that shift actually take to happen? Great question. I don't know the full answer, and I don't think anyone knows the full answer, but I can have a little poke at it, poke around. Constantine uh, became Emperor of the Roman Empire at the beginning of the 4th century, and um, most of us will probably know that he made, eventually he made Christianity the 
religion of the Roman Empire. And obviously the Roman Empire is pretty extensive by that stage. And the question is, how much was, did that play the role in the growth of the early church? Um, hard to tell. One thing that we can say is that there's a difference between nominal Christianity and the real deal. And therefore, we very well know in the state at the moment, in the UK, that although the Church of England is the official church of religion of the state, and many people on their census forms, I think in 2011 it was 48% ticked the C of E box. Um, I can tell you 48% of people do not come to church on a Sunday. So, you know, <laughs> and the Jedis don't go to their meetings either. You know, So there's a lot of nominal religion around. And so Constantine making it the established religion of the empire I'm sure it made it easier for people to investigate the Christian claims. Um, it wasn't illegal for them to go to church anymore. And of course, prior to that, it was a really uh, despised religion. People had to meet underground, often in crypts or in houses. And um, that's got to kind of frustrate the growth of the thing. Um, so it probably made it easier for people to, to come across it. It's turned, in terms of the growth, it's very hard to put a statistic on it. Um, there's a sociologist called Stark. I just looked it up. And he reckons that by the year 350... Um, the church had grown to roughly 34,000 people. I looked at his methodology. It's pretty spurious. It's very hard to tell. So Eusebius, who's a church historian, says in the 4th century, there are X number of clergy and X number of widows the church was looking after, and he extrapolates from that to work out how many Christians there were. I think that's pretty open to questioning. So it's very hard. We don't have much hard data. So difficult question, good question. Um, was there a second part to it, Marilyn? No, we asked it together. Okay. Well, the second part was, I don't know, I haven't been listening to you as carefully as everybody else. How long did the paradigm shift take, the one that you referred to in your talk? Yeah, and I guess the two things we could say on that is you can measure a paradigm shift in numerous ways. Firstly, you can measure it numerically, um, and that's what I've just said. Stark tries to do that. I think it's very hard to work out how quickly that happened. You can also measure it in terms of sincerity of belief. And as soon as you get uh, this message, at least claiming that this event happened, the resurrection... Um, we find people staking their lives, as I mentioned, on this, on this message. And that, that is the mark of a significant paradigm shift that someone's willing to stake their life on it. So hard to say numerically, but in terms of personal sincerity, we can say quite firmly, it was quick. Any comeback on that? Happy? Okay, let's shift emphasis a bit. A question about Jewish thought and expectations. Judaism did predict a Messiah all along. Wasn't it just a case of some Jews accepting Jesus as the Messiah and some not? Um, yeah, on one level, I want to say yes, amen to that. Yeah, exactly. Some Jews accepted him as Messiah and some didn't. If you read the book of Acts, you find exactly that happening. And the Apostle Paul goes around um, trying to persuade them that Jesus was actually the Messiah. And normally what happens is a whole load of them say, uh, not really sure we'd like to hear you again. Some of them commit their lives and become Christians and some... Um, get really angry and occasionally stone him or throw them out of the city. So it kind of polarizes people. So yes, on one level. Um, I think maybe the reason that question was asked um, was due to kind of Jewish expectations in the Old Testament and that kind of thing. Um, I want to say that they had a concept of Messiah that wasn't actually fully correct. So if you read the Gospels, that's very obvious. Um, I'm preaching on John 6 on Sunday, and there Jesus feeds the 5,000 um, with a picnic, and their response to that is, let's make him king. And so they are looking for a political ruler. And they think the Messiah is going to be that. They see the Romans as the big enemy of the day. And I guess their conception, therefore, of the Messiah is smaller than Jesus wants it to be. And he refuses to be made king politically. 
but he's come and he makes it clear he's come for much bigger things than that. So, yes and no. Following on from that, I think, so from the concept of Jesus as Messiah to the concept of Jesus as God, um, you suggested in your talk that the theology of the incarnation, incarnation of God becoming man um, was formulated by the Jews quite quickly after Jesus' death and resurrection. But wasn't there quite a lot of debate about the divinity of Christ in the early church? And a related question, if Jesus was God and died, does that mean that a God, God, can be killed? You may have to remind me of the second one because they're both pretty big. Um, great questions. The first one, therefore, on how developed an understanding of the incarnation uh, was in the early um, kind of years of the church. Lots that could be said on that. I think I mentioned in one previous week that there are parts of the New Testament which scholars all agree um, predate uh, the apostles who quote them, so Peter and Paul. And so that's bits like 1 Corinthians 15 or Philippians 2. Um, they are early creeds or hymns, people think, that were sung or, or said in the early church. The language is very old in them and doesn't fit with the author's Greek kind of style. And in those very, very earliest parts of New Testament writings, we find a very, very elevated picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at one and the same time, an idea of the incarnation. So if you read Philippians 2, you will find both concepts very strongly at play. That um, although he was equal with God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he became a man. And then he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then he was raised from the dead and exalted to the Father's side, every knee will bow at his name. So there in that kind of sweep, you get, yes, he was a man, so much so that he could be killed, and we can talk more about that in a minute with the second question, um, but also he has the name which is above every other name, he is divine. So we find in these bits of literature that predate even 10, 15 years after the death of Jesus, an understanding of Jesus the man and Jesus God. Now, that is not to say that there is a fully developed and worked through and systematic theology of the Trinity or of the Incarnation at, 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 in the earlier church times. And in fact, it's fascinating reading some of the writings of um, the Gospel writers and Paul and Peter particularly as they grapple with how to explain what's happened. There's a few occasions where they use um, the Shema, which is a bit in the Old Testament, which speaks of there being one God only. And Paul is at pains to say this one God is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. He's kind of splitting categories. He's struggling to work out how to explain this. But one thing is very clear, and that is that they were convinced Jesus is both God and man. Could you read out the second question? Yeah. It really is a question about how we get our heads around that concept. If Jesus is God, does this mean that God can be killed? How do we yeah. get our minds around that? Thank you. And uh, many a theological student would ask exactly the same question, especially as they're sitting finals. Um, I think it's a great question to ask, and I think, I think there is some mystery here, and I'm happy to say that. But if you, if you read some of the theology of the early church where they are working through what the incarnation means and how it can be described, the two natures of Christ, specifically his humanity and his divinity, and how they work together, you find uh, various people umming and ahhing and toing and froing, and some people being exiled as heretics, and some people saying, no, this is the right way and the orthodox way. So there was a lot of debate to and fro and kind of fine-tuning this important doctrine. 
The simple nutshell answer, and it is a nutshell answer, is that when I preach on the cross, I'm very careful to say Jesus Christ, and I said it in that talk, I think, Jesus Christ died in his human nature, or I said he was separated from the Father in his human nature, because the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, can never be separated. So I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that if, if you would like. Um, I think the question also said, where did he go for three days? Was that another one? There was, that's another question. Yeah. Okay, where did he go for three days? Um, there's, been, there's been debate. Um, 1 Peter 3 talks about something to do with that. I don't particularly want to go into that kind of detail, but feel free to have a look. What is very, very clear is that the claim is Jesus paid for our infinitely offensive sin because it was against an infinitely valuable God um, fully in that time. And some people might come back and say, wait a second, he wasn't actually wherever he was in hell or dead for an infinitely long time. So how can he have paid an infinitely significant debt in that short, finite three days? And the answer comes back, he is infinitely valuable himself. So he sheds divine blood. Yeah. Shall we take some questions from the floor? I have got a few more good questions here, but it would be good to hear from you guys. Thank you. It's sort of related to what we're talking about in the last few questions. So um, it's how did Jesus actually take the sin of the world upon him? So with the Jewish sacrificial system, not that I know the ins and outs, the priests, would they lay their hands on the animal and confer the sin of the people? How did, I mean, we know he died, we, but don't really recall God saying, you know, the sin is upon him or someone else or him saying, I'm taking the sin upon me. So that's, mm. that's Thank the question. You. Thank you. That's a clear question, is it, to, to everyone? Very good question. There's lots that we can say on that, actually. And uh, you may recall in some of the gospel accounts, we're told that the, the sky goes dark, pitch black, in fact, for three hours from noonday. So at a very odd time, it's too long uh, to be an eclipse. Um, and that is picking up on a strong theme we find in the Old Testament, some of the minor prophets, of darkness being a picture of God's intense anger. And so when I lead Bible studies on that passage, I ask the question, so it, it signifies God the Father's anger, and the question is, who is he angry at? It's a trap. And the people in the Bible study always say, he must be angry at the Roman soldiers who are crucifying his son. He's not how do we know he's not? Well, Jesus says on the cross, well-known words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes a psalm. And that is the big clue. And the clue is, and it's offensive, but it's wonderful, is that God the Father is intensely angry. He's pouring out his anger on his son because his son has been made sin. And God, we're told in the Old Testament, is of too, too much purer eyes than to even look on evil. So there we have him not even able to look on his son whom he loves and has been loving from eternity past. The other thing which is significant to, to put the jigsaw puzzle together completely is that the, the temple curtain, massive great curtain, it's kind of even thicker than John Lewis curtains and longer and taller, um, was, was torn in two from top to bottom. Those are the details were given. And the significance of that, when I teach children this, I always use this illustration, is that the temple curtain was like a big no entry sign to, to human beings, only one person, that was the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. 
um, because that is where God's focused symbolic presence resided. And since God is a holy God and we are sinful human beings, we, couldn't, we cannot go in there for fear of our lives. Only one person can go in. And even he had to go in with a rope around his middle in case he died in there, in which case the people would just have to pull him out. So that's how serious it was. So it's a really big no-entry sign. And, and therefore it is stunning, isn't it, to read that that curtain was torn in two. So I will rip this no-entry sign in two and say that suddenly the way was made open for human beings to come and become God the Father's children, live in the Holy of Holies, as it were. Um, so I think those three jigsaw puzzle pieces of evidence are, are pretty persuasive. The darkness, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you second me, and the, and the curtain. Yeah, hi John. We read that account about Thomas, but if Jesus wants us to believe in him, why doesn't he reveal himself to us in the way that he did to Thomas? Yes. Yes, it's the obvious question, isn't it, from that passage? Why can't I have the particular blessing of being able to put my fingers where he got to put his fingers? I think I just want to say two things on that. The first is, if you read the passage carefully, there is a pregnant absence of a bit of detail. So Thomas asks to do three, I think, specific things in terms of the evidence. Fingers in, touching hands, the wounds, the side. We're not actually told that he does. Jesus invites him to. There's no kind of bashfulness about that. But we're not told that Thomas does. And I think that's a pregnant pause intentionally. I don't think Thomas needs to. But clearly, he, he, can, he can see, and clearly we weren't there. Um, I think the answer to this question is quite a hard answer, and it's this. If you read Luke chapter 16, I think you'll find a parable there. It's the parable called um, Lazarus, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And I'll just tell it to you briefly. What happens is that there's a man who knows the Lord Jesus, who's Lazarus, and a man who doesn't. That's a rich man. We don't know his name. They both die. It's quite a brutal story. We're told that the rich man goes straight to hell, and, the, and Lazarus goes straight to heaven. What's really interesting is the rich man says, please could we arrange to send someone from here back into the world to warn my brothers about hell? Because then, he says, surely they would believe someone who'd come back from the dead. In other words, surely they would believe someone who, who was able to testify personally. If they saw a miracle like that in their front room, surely they'd become a Christian. And we find a fascinating answer given at the end of that parable. And it is this. They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the Bible, this book we all have on our tables. If they don't believe the Bible, they would not believe it even if someone rose again from the dead in their front room. I think that's quite stunning. I think it's, I'm not ashamed of that. That's been my experience, and it was Jesus' experience. If you read the Gospels, he did miracles left, right, and center all the way through. You would expect everyone who saw those things to believe him. Again, come on Sunday, I'm speaking on John 6. He feeds 5,000 people with a packed lunch. I actually think it was closer to 20,000. You would have thought that those 20,000 people would immediately become Christians, right? They don't. They just want more bread. And it's baffling. Why? And that's the second point of my sermon. You're going to have to come. Are we taking any more? Sorry? Are we taking any more questions? Uh, we probably shouldn't. Getting carried away. Um, probably shouldn't. I want to say just a couple of things. Please do come up personally. Ask further questions. I'm going to be hanging around. Um, let me just say, I just want to finish by saying a couple of things, if I may, because we must wrap up. The first is to say this. 
it's been the case for a number of people that maybe you've come for the first big questions or the second and you've thought, actually, this is better than I thought. It's in a church. It's not too cheesy like I expected to be or whatever. And you've ended up coming to the whole series. And that's been great. And I know for some of you, it's been a bit of a journey and you've had questions answered and that kind of thing. And I just gently want to say to you, please don't let this be a flash in the pan thing. I want I think these things are just so important that we can't just leave it as intellectual titillation. You know, it was an interesting evening. And so I just want to flag up kind of th three things, maybe four. I'll see how I feel. The first is the bookstore. We sell probably one book every evening on big questions. I think we should sell more. They're brilliant. And I've been reading them cheekily and then bringing them back to the bookstore. The one I read recently is this, Who is Jesus? Fits in with the title of the talk. It is stunning and I think it's very moving. So I think you might find that helpful. Give it a read. I think it's £3.50. Um, the second thing is we've got an alpha course starting on the 23rd of March. Is that right, Tim? 23rd of March. You might have heard of it. It's basically, it's going on. It makes some assumptions that we didn't make during this series. But it might be helpful for some of you who haven't done that before. So maybe consider that. Um, the last thing is we've got an events week coming up. All sorts of things, all these events. And the flyers are on that table over there. Why not come along? There'll be a talk at each thing or whatever, but it's a chance to think a bit more about it. I guess I just want to say, if Jesus did rise from the dead, and I'm aware that's a big IF, but if he did, then surely Thomas is right. My Lord and my God. It changes everything. And I really mean every word in that sentence. It changes everything. So I want to say that. The second thing is thank you to you guys. Thank you so much for coming. I personally have a ball every one of these Wednesday nights, um, and I hope you enjoy it too. Please come back to next week, um, The Liberating God, Am I Really Free? As I've written all the talks, that's the one I've enjoyed writing the most, and the more I think about it, the more I think in a way that's the most important. I think it speaks very pertinently to our culture, so please come back to that. But thank you. Thank you very much.